This is Black Girls Love True Crime, a true crime podcast told from the perspective of a Black girl. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Girls Love True Crime. I hope everyone is doing well, um, wherever you're listening from, hope you're in good spirits, hope you're staying safe um, and you're staying healthy during this time. Uh, It's your host T, uh, so welcome to another episode. Um, I, uh, was in, so, so before we even get started, um, one of the things that I enjoy about, about listening to podcasts, right, is that I feel like it's, it's very, it feels very personal, you know, like when you're listening to a podcast, you, um, it's, it's just you and, and the, and the host, you know what I mean? Like, essentially, like when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm doing it sometimes when I'm cooking, when I'm in the gym, when I'm working out, you know, when I'm taking a walk. Um, and a lot of times I'm in my zone, completely engrossed in what I'm listening to. And so I like that feeling of connectedness. And so because of that, when I am now on the other side, you know, recording these episodes, I think that I, still have that same feeling of connectiveness. Like I almost feel like I'm talking to people that are going to say something back to me, even though that's not the case. Um, so because of that, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm just talking to my friends here. Um, and so because of that, I think that it's worth kind of sharing just a little bit about like my 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 scene right now, like what's happening. Um, so really what, I mean, and I'm sure as I continue to grow in this on this platform, um, I'll start to learn new tips and new tricks to be able to help me record. But for now, as a newbie, the way that I record my episodes is that I'm literally in my car, right? So I live in an apartment. And so the way that I record is I come out to, um, you know, the garage where our car is parked parked and then I just sit in the car close the doors and then just start recording I have like my research and stuff with me here so that I can have everything handy and then I just record because my understanding from you know trying to learn this trade is that you know being in an enclosed space helps you kind of like the the way that the the um the recordings are heard. And so that's the way that I've been doing it. And so it's always interesting because, and so and so that even kind of makes it feel a lot more personal because I'm sitting here in my car, anyone who walks by is probably like, what is she, what is she doing, you know? But I mean, I'm sure it just looks like I'm talking to someone on the phone. But anyway, that's my scene right now. That's what I'm doing. I'm out here in my car talking to you guys, uh, which I'm sure is the same way a lot of you guys are going to be in your car listening to me because that's how I do. I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm taking, you know, when I'm just driving. And so it's kind of fitting to be sitting in a car recording a podcast to um, people who are probably going to be sitting in their cars listening to me. But anyway, friends, let's delve into the episode for today. So it's interesting, you know, we're still in South Africa, people, we're still in South Africa. So doing some of this research for this episode, right, I think I like stumbled on a list somewhere of like, um, of um, the countries that have the most amount of recorded serial killers. And if you're into true crime at all, you would know that the country that, you know, literally exceeds this over anyone and and the second is a very 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 distant second and the first is 
the United States, like the serial killer numbers are in the thousands. But um, the first African country that I came across was South Africa. Like there's just so um, so much material in South Africa. And so for that reason, we're still in South Africa. We're going to, you know, we'll be here. I think uh, maybe next week we would go to another country. I'm sure we'll come back to South Africa at some point, though. Um, but I can't really wait till I start to hear from people's thoughts to be able to get, you know, I would, I, my, my hope is that as this podcast starts to get bigger and I hear from people that people would be able to send in true crime episodes or I mean true crime stories or crime stories from their own communities and their own countries that's my vision is that like I'll be able to get some kind of story from you know a a little you know village in um, someone's little village in Nigeria or in Ghana or in Cameroon or in Ethiopia or, you know, that's what I, that's what I would really, really like to do because I feel like all of those type of things, I'm not going to be able to get on Google. I'm not going to be able to get on Murderpedia or Wikipedia. Like, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna be there. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to is getting those, those type of materials from you guys. But for now, like I said, we're still in South Africa. But what is different about today's episode, guys, boom, 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 <laughs> okay, disregard that. Um, what is different about today's episode is that this time we are talking about a female serial killer, um, which are really rare. Um, most times, I mean, serial killers are usually, what, what has been recorded is usually men, you know, and I think a lot of it is that and I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure that's probably what the case actually is, but I'm sure some of you may also be maybe the tacks that women use sometimes are maybe a little bit more difficult to prove. And so it's not, you know, you can't just convict them. Like there is a lot less violence when a woman kills, um, I find. Uh, and so a lot of times it's just diff- more difficult to be able to tell that it's a woman that does it. But um, for this time, and you would see why I say this is a this is a really prime perfect example of why some a lot of times it might be difficult to say because when you hear how this was and what the eventual conviction was or the lack there thereof you would know why a lot of times you maybe there are a lot of more women who are serially killing we just don't know but we're talking about um, the story or the case of Daisy Louisa C D Melker. Um, and so we're going to talk about her. And, and I think that I'm, I'm still trying to streamline the best way to tell, um, to tell this episode. I think that the way that I try to do it now is maybe give a gist of what it's about and then break down the episode and then end it that way. Um, and then we'll try, I'll stream, I'll, I'll kind of go back and forth and see what the best way is. And then we'll come to one that works. But for now, this is this lady who was simply known as Daisy the Milker. Um, she was a trained nurse who poisoned two of her husbands and um, was eventually convicted for the murder of um, her son. So it was three men, two husbands, and her son. Um, can you? <laughs> so this is this is some ish, but um, she's historically the second woman to have been hanged in South Africa. So. Let's talk about her. Let's talk about what she did and how she did it. So let's talk a little bit about her early life. So um, Daisy, uh, let's see, give me one second. All right, so Daisy, she was born Daisy Hancorn Smith, 
and she was born on the 1st of June, 1886 at Seven Fountains near Grahamstown, Grahamstown um, in South Africa. She was one of 11 children. Um, when she was 12, she moved to Rhodesia, which is now known as Zimbabwe. Um, this is also what is cool about doing this um, this um, podcast, because, I mean, besides the fact that I am obviously reading about true crime stories, I actually am learning more little stuff about other African countries, which I really um, like. Uh, and so anyway, she moved to Rhodesia, which is now known as Zimbabwe, um, to live with her father and two of her brothers. And so three years after that, she became a boarder. Um, so it's interesting. Let me, for a lot of listeners who are, and, and my analytics, at least for right now, show that I do have listeners. Um, most of my listeners are in the United States. So um, I know in the U.S., not a lot of people go to boarding school. It's, it's a fairly exclusive thing. But essentially, for people like me who grew up in Nigeria, um, when you go to boarding school, you are referred to like, someone who is a boarder. So I, you'll be a boarder versus a day student. A day student is someone who goes back and forth in the morning, goes home, goes to school, and then comes back home. But a boarder is someone who is goes off to boarding school. So anyway, so she became a boarder at Good Hope Seminary School in Cape Town. Um, she then returned to Rhodesia in 1903, but uh, apparently didn't find this life very exciting. Um, and so, because not very long after, she returned back to South Africa and she was enrolled at a nursing home in Durban. Um, one of her, during one of her um, holidays in Rhodesia, she met and fell in love with a young man who was named Bert Fuller. He was a civil servant um, and they had planned to get married in October of 1907. Um, unfortunately, um, her fiance Fuller contracted black water fever and he died um, with Daisy at his bedside um, on the very day that they had planned to get married. And so she, he had left her, um, what I believe is it's a hundred pounds or um, to his fiance. He had left her uh, some money. And, and so in, in 1909, about and and I think this was the first um, time where she was like, oh, sh- <laughs> like I could get something when someone dies. Like I I get something. So that was probably like her first eye um, opener to this kind of life. Um, so in 1909, two years after the death of her fiance, um, about 18 months after, um, she got married to a man named William Alfred Coyle. Coyle. Um, he was a plumber in Johannesburg. So at this point, she was 23 years old and he was 36. That's a fairly distant age difference. Um, so the couple, um, oh man, and this was sad when I read this actually. The couple had five children and four of the five children died. The first were a set of twins. They died in infancy. Their third child died of an abscess on the liver, and the fourth suffered suffered from convulsions and bowel trouble and died at the age of 15 months. And their last and only surviving child was um, named Rhodes, um, Cecil Rhodes, or Rhodes Cecil, sorry, Rhodes Cecil Coyle. And he was born in June of 1911. And so this is another thing, right? Like, um, 
I mean, and not so, and I, I feel like I say this almost every episode when, whenever we give, whenever I give a background of people who commit all of these crimes, I always feel like giving that background somehow um, is serving to humanize them, right? So we're saying, oh, they, just so you know, they committed all of these crimes, but this was their early childhood. They had this life and they had this life and this happened to them and that happened to them. And it almost kind of makes you feel sorry for them a little bit. I feel like, um, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it is just what it is. I mean, it is, it is context. It's providing context of, you know, what maybe could have become a contributing factor to this person becoming what they eventually became, right? Um, it's not an excuse, but, you know, it is, it, it is a factor. So anyway, unfortunately, she lost four of her children. So let's go to her first murder, right? So early in the morning of July, I mean, January 11th, 1923, William Coyle, this is her husband, he became ill um, soon after taking Epsom salts prepared for him by his wife. Um, I don't know. I don't understand. Maybe I don't know enough about why someone would take Epsom salts. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I don't know. Anyway, whoever knows, that's, that's great. Anyway, so he took Epsom salts um, by his wife. And so the first doctor who attended to him didn't consider his condition serious and they prescribed a br- bromide mixture. And so what I saw about a bromide mixture, because I Googled it, like, what is that? And so apparently um, this was frequently used as, as sedatives in the 19th and 20th century. Um, and so they're used in over-the-counter sedatives and headache remedies. Um, and so that's what it was for. So I guess for pain relief. So they had prescribed him a bromide mixture, but his condition deteriorated rapidly. So it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And not long after the doctor had left, he took a turn for the worse. His wife summoned the neighbors to help and called for another doctor. And at this point, Coyle was in excruciating pain when the doc when the second doctor arrived he began to foam at the mouth he was blue in the face he screamed in agony if anyone touched him and this went on until he died and so um faced with his symptoms the second doctor suspected what they call sh- string mm, lord help me strange screechening poisoning and refused to sign the death certificate. So this is a doctor that was like hip on her game. He's like, no, ma'am, I know what you may be up to. He was like, nah. Um, so a postmortem was subsequently performed by the acting district surgeon, Dr. Fergus. And so the cause of de- death was certified to be chronic nephritis or cerebral hemorrhage. So Daisy Coyle, the mom at that point, was a sole beneficiary of her husband's will, and she inherited a thousand seven hundred and ninety-five whatever South African money is. Um, so she inherited that, and so, um, so that's her. That's the, this is now the second time. Now it's becoming a trend, right? The first time was you know it was her fiance she he died she maybe didn't know that this was something she could get she was fairly young i mean when she married this guy she was what 20 23 so she was fairly young so she got married to him 23 
in 1909 and he died in 1923. So um, I'm about to show that I'm not very good at math, but they were married for what, 13, 13, 14 years, 14 years if I'm right. Anyway, so um, so that was it. So he, he left. And then at the age of 36, and um, three years to the day after the death of her first husband, Daisy Coyle remarried again. Another plumber. Wow. <laughs> I have so many jokes that are coming to my mind right now, but that's not. Anyway, so she got married to another plumber. I guess she really loved the plumbers. Um, so his name was Robert Sprout. He was 10 years her senior. So this is her trend, right? Obviously, um, when you're getting married to people who are much older than you, they're probably more established. They're more, um, you know, have more money. Tech, I mean, you know, not always, but probably have more, more money because they're more established. And so she's, she's really having, she has a pattern here of how she picks this man. Um, so he was 10 years her senior in October 1927. Um, Robert Sprott, her second husband, bec becomes violently ill. He was in great agony again um, and suffered sev um, severe muscle spasms, similar to those experienced by her first husband, William Coyle. He recovered. And then a few weeks later, he suffered a second fatal attack after drinking some beer in the company of his wife and his stepson. Rhodes. That's the son that survived from the first marriage. And so he died on November 6, 1927. And Dr. Melinick, who was the attending physician at that point, certified that the cause of death was um, arteriosclerosis and cerebral hemorrhage. No autopsy was performed. Following his death, once again, ching, 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 um, our dear lady uh, got, you know, uh, $4,000 or four, I mean, well, 4,000 um, South African money plus another 560 paid by his pension fund. So she's, I mean, and this is, what are we talking about here? This is 1927, right? She's probably living large. She's doing good. She's doing pretty well for herself. Um, so so this is her, this is, this is second husband, second time. And at this point, she's probably thinking, this is a way of life. Like I could, I could completely leave off. I can just continue to leave off of these people. And then this is where maybe things kind of turn a little bit weirdly. Um, so this is where we now have a record of her third murder. So this is a few years later, um, maybe four years later on January 21st, 1931, um, she married for um, the third time. And this time her husband was a widower. He's a son who um, had lost his wife earlier. His name was um, Sidney Clarence DeMelker, who like her previous, <laughs> this is funny at this point. Um, this is actually hilarious. Who like her previous two husbands, can we guess what his profession was? He was a plumber. He was a plumber again. Um, I don't know. Maybe plumbers were just very, very well-to-be, well-to-do. Um, but he was a plumber. She was frequenting the same places. She met the same kind of people. And she just loved her plumb. She loved, she loved plumbers. Anyway, so late in February 1932, 
she traveled um a while from uh Germany's Germany's team to and I don't know maybe all of these names can actually get confusing but in any case she traveled quite a distance to get um a quantity of arsenic from a chemist there um so she used her former name here Sprout which was her second husband's name and claimed that she required the poison to destroy (laughs) to destroy to use on a on a sick cat right um, so less than a week later, on Wednesday, um, Rhodes, this is her son, right? This is, so keep keep in mind, right? This is her son. Um, his name, Rhodes Cecile Call. Her son took ill at work after drinking coffee from a thermos flask that his mom has prepared for him. Um, so a few, uh, and then also, and this is probably where she made the mistake, um, a fellow worker, James Webster, um, or I mean, she made a lot of mistakes, but um, James, a fellow co-worker of her, of her son, I guess, James Webster also became very ill um, and he drank very little of the coffee um, that from, from her son's thermos. Um, but he recovered a few days, few days later, but unfortunately her son rode Cecile Coyle, um, this is her son from her very first marriage, died at home. Um, at midday on the following Saturday. And so there was a postmortem followed and the case of death was given as cerebral malaria. Um, and so he was buried. And so now this is a woman who two of her two of her husbands, first and second husbands, have died strangely and fairly violently. And then her son had died again strangely. And so... Um, on April 1st, um, he, Mrs. Melker, Daisy, receives 100 South African money <laughs> from his life insurance. But the story doesn't end there, right? And so this is where it becomes interesting, right? Because it's like, why kill your son? Like, you've killed two of your husbands. But I think, like, when people kill their kids, not that it makes sense to kill anyone at all. But when you kill your child, um, as anyone, but as a woman especially, when you kill your child, that especially a woman who has lost four children, when you kill your child, it's kind of like, what's going on? Like, what is the motive behind that? Um, and so it's around, but at this point, I don't think that anyone necessarily suspects anything yet. Everyone is just like, probably, damn, like this woman has it's a series of very unfortunate events. Like you just keep going death after death after death um, following you. But it was at this time that the um, second husband, um, Richard Sprout, um, his brother, his brother, William Sprout, um, had become suspicious. He's like, yo, what's good? Like this lady. So I think he at this point had become suspicious of like these deaths that were surrounding this woman. And um, he conveyed, conveyed that to the authorities. And so um, the police eventually obtained a court order and they permitted them to exhume the bodies of the three men. So the son, Rhodes Coyle, the second husband, Richard, I mean, Robert Sprout, and the first husband, William Coyle. And so the first body um, to be removed was that of the son. And the corpse was found to be in an unusually good state of preservation, which apparently is characteristic of the presence of arsenic in large quantities 
I didn't know that. But um, so sure enough, the government analyst was able to isolate traces of arsenic um, in 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 her son's body. And so although the bodies of William Carl, I mean, the, the two husbands, let's just say that although both of their bodies were largely decomposed, there were traces of poison. This poison is, is strike striking. Um, were found in the vertebrae of each of the men. And so their bones also had a pinkish pinkish discoloration, which suggested that the men are taking pink strychnine, which was common at that time. And so um, traces of arsenic were also found in their hair and, their, and the fingernails of James Webster, um, Rhodes' colleague who, are, who had survived. So now they're seeing poison in all of this men and they're seeing a trend. Um, and I don't even know if when all of this was happening, I don't know if, um, if Daisy was knowing that this was happening and her third husband I mean, he got lucky because he would have probably been the next one, but um, he, he got lucky. So a week later, the police arrested Mrs. DeMilker and they charged her with the murder of all of the three men. And so obviously there was a lot of public interest, as I'm sure the newspapers gave the story a great deal of coverage. Um, the chemist that she had bought the arson from that killed her son, he recognized her in the newspaper. And he went to the police, of course. He was like, I remember this lady. I thought it was weird that she wanted to buy some arsenic for her sick cat. Um, so the trial for her, for for this case, lasted for 30 days. Um, there were 60 witnesses that were called to the Crown, which I guess is how, um, you know, South Africans um, call their, like, to the court, to the court. And less than half of this number for the defense. Um, so, so let's see. Uh, so they for for so there was there was forensic evidence that was presented, and so they had an expert toxicologist and a professor of pharmacologist um, that came up. And so, in summing it up, before giving the verdict, the judge pointed out that the state had been unable to prove con conclusively that um, the two husbands, um, Carl and Sprout, had died of strychnine poisoning. And so it says, he does, he, the, the judge says, it does not convince me, nor does it convict the accused, he says. On the third account, though, this was the killing of her son. However, he had come to the inescapable escapable, this is in quotes, that's why I'm saying it, he had come to the inescapable conclusion that Mrs. Daisy DeMelka had murdered her son. Um, and the evidence was because um, her son, Rhodes Call, had died of arsenic poisoning. The coffee flask held traces of arsenic poisoning or arsenic. Um, the accused had put the arsenic into the flask and the defense of suicide was unattainable. Um, and so when he finally turned to her, she, you know, um, tried to say that she was innocent, but she was eventually, um, condemned to death by hanging. And so the sentence was carried out. And on the morning of December, 1932, Daisy the Milker, at this point, she was age 46, so young, was hanged at Pretoria Central Prison. Um, it's so, it's so um, it's so crazy, you know, that this happened, um, all these three men and, um, 
I mean, they only found her guilty of her son, the one that like no one even knows what the motive was. Like, why why did she kill her son? What was the reasoning behind it? Like the first two men, you can say, Oh, okay, like she wanted to do it because obviously to get the inheritance. But the son, she ended up getting what a hundred um dollars or a hundred um South African money for it, but no one knows why she did it. And I think I was reading somewhere that there was, you know, all this different rationale for like why she may have killed her son or or what could have caused. And I think some was like that she there was a lot of kind of like um contradictory um um I guess opinions of her son. I think some people thought that her son was a very gentle, was a very like nice gentleman and was hardworking and you know just all around good guy and then there were other people who I think thought he was lazy and just wasn't carrying his weight and so there are some um, opinions that she maybe had just the motivation was that she wasn't proud of her son and she and I mean but is that reason to kill your son apparently for Daisy it is um, but that that might have been a motive it's like why why kill your son that was your really your only family left but that's what she did and so she has become somewhat, and this is what is interesting and kind of scary, um, she has become somewhat of a South African icon and has entered um, popular myths. And so now in apparently South African, I really, really hope that at some point there are going to be South Africans listening to my words, because um, I would like to hear um, what people's opinions of this are, what people's thoughts, if, if this is something that you guys experienced when you were growing up, like if a door blew shut in the wind, they would say, it was a ghost of Daisy DeMilker. Um, if a child's hair was unkempt and wild, they would say you look like Daisy DeMilker. But like no lie though, if you if you Google Daisy DeMilker, her her hair looks kind of crazy. So <laughs> it looks kind of all over the place. Um, and so, uh, so let's see. And then there's also a rumor that like DeMilker spirit haunts Ward Seven of the Transvaal Children's Hospital, which is now the Florence Transition Home in Bramfontein. It was here that she apparently worked as a nurse and learned about poisons. Um, That's scary. Um, So yeah, so Daisy, I mean, her story is really, is really interesting. I, I feel like I've, I've definitely heard about her story a little bit um, in one of the podcasts. I mean, she sounds familiar. At this point, I listen to so much true crime content between the podcast I listen to and the shows that I watch. Like, I never know where I hear something from, but I know I've heard her story before. Um, just listening to her, um, just listening to her. But of course, when I'm the one doing the research, it's definitely, I go a lot more in depth and I hear and I and I find out a lot more. So this was really interesting um, to read, and I hope that you guys found it interesting to listen to as well and to listen to my take on it and to listen to how I shared the story and my little ad-libs and my little, you know, little things that I'm inserting into it. Um, I really enjoyed um, sharing this with you, and I look forward to next time. Um, have a good rest of the day wherever you're listening to this from. Um, stay 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 safe, stay healthy. Talk to you next time. Bye.